You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Let's turn our Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As I watch what's going on in this world, I am always curious about how people are talking about God, how society, how our culture views God, how they view the church, which means how they view me, how they view you, how they view our sitting down in a room like this right now, how they view what we believe. And um, I think that it's no surprise to us who are you're born again here. Jesus has really transformed your life. Um, that as you look at the culture of our day, you, you realize that they don't see this or who you are or what you believe as something very significant. Would you guys agree? Okay. When the pandemic first moved in through our land, we began to see... Uh, even the, the, the federal government and, and local governments begin to put titles on establishments. Some were seen as essential, some were seen as non-essential. I, I remember reading, I was like, wait a minute, this is kind of interesting. All of a sudden, I don't know if I choose that word, but they chose that word, and I realized, you realized, we all realized that immediately. We, looked at by the government, especially our state government, were not seen as essential. What does that mean when someone looks at you as the church or me or you as a Christian and says, you're not significant, you're not essential? Well, for a guy like me, that makes me scratch my head and say, well, I understand where they're coming from. Biblically, I understand where they're coming from. And because of that, I don't look at them as my enemy, those people who say that. I look at them as victims of the enemy. Because anybody that's a victim of the enemy is going to be blinded to the truth of who Jesus is and the significance of who he is in your life and who he is in a place like this called the church. You can clap, yes. It's, it's kind of election time. We'll just clap after every cool, like, three minutes. That'd be good. Have these applause signs behind me. That'd be great. But, you know, it's, it's, it's something worth digging into. And I've been, you know, scratching my head on this and going, you know, how can we gain a perspective? Because the Lord doesn't want us to treat these people who look at us with indifference and would deem us as essential. He doesn't want us to treat them like the enemy. He wants us to actually treat them like they are, victims of the enemy. And so perspective, how we view them, how we view ourselves. And there was a, a scripture that the Lord keep kept taking me back to, and I just read it and kind of, it's, it's, it's one of those I even have memorized and whatnot, but it's the chapter. It was like, Lance, look, look at this within the context. And it's verse 7. If you look down at verse 7, this is where the Lord kept taking me. But we, Paul talking to believers have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence 
of the power may be of God and not on us. Look at verse 8. We're not going to get to verse 8 today, but we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And when you, you look at those, those words in the context of this chapter, you begin to realize there's a reason that we are not destroyed. We are not struck down. We are not in despair. We are not crushed. And the reason is because we as, as Christians, there's been something invested in us that has altered who we are, that has altered how we think. It's altered how we, we view ourselves. And it's altered how we, we view God, how we view ourselves. And it's altered how we view people who are yet to be saved. And, and what, what helps us understand this is, is verses 1 through 6. The, the first six verses of chapter 4 leading, leading up to this verse 7 that talks about we have this treasure in earthen vessels. When we think about the culture that we live in, they, they basically are measuring the significance of others based on externals. How a person looks, their fashion, their hairstyle, their ink, how a person lives, where they live, the size of the house in which they live, the city in which they live, the job that they might have, the career that they might have, the school, the, 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 the certificates, even where you shop, the kind of car that you, you drive, the kind of phone that you have, the kind of music that you listen to, your political views. All of this external stuff people are looking at in our culture and they are <clears throat> saying you were either significant or you are not significant. Part of that is just human nature. We go back into the Old Testament and we know that the nation of Israel, they were a theocracy. What does that mean? To be governed by God. But there comes a time when they're like, we're looking at all the nations around us and we'd kind of, we'd like to be like them in the sense that they have a king. They got a cool king, he's a good looking guy, he wears a cool, you know, He's got the throne, he's, he's, he's got the crown, he's got the cool. We would like to be like that. We'd like to be a monarchy. And, and when you, you begin to look at that all unfold in 1 Samuel, you begin to see that the people, they even chose for themselves a king. And who, who did they look for? The one that they deemed on the outside as being qualified. The, the guy that was tall, dark, and handsome. But that guy on the inside was really jacked up. He had a heart problem. His name was Saul. And God would rip the kingdom from his hand and he would send a guy, a prophet by the name of, of Samuel to the house of Jesse who had these young boys and he'd say, I'm going to choose for myself a king from the family line of Jesse. And, and even when Jesse, the dad, was like, wow, that's a trip. Samuel, you're here. I know who you should choose. He went for his eldest, Eliab. That's just human nature. It's just how we think. Sure, my, my oldest, the one that's most you know, educated, competent, and all of that. But, but God's like, no, 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 no. See, 
you look at the outward appearance. You just do. That's what you do. But I look at the heart. And, and God would go down through the different choices that dad would offer to Samuel until he would run through the run of his sons. And he'd be like, no, God doesn't choose any of your sons. Do you have another? And he's like, yeah, well, he's just this junior high freckled-faced kid out watching the sheep. Go get him. The next thing you know, God's like, that's the guy. I don't look at the physical stature, God would say there in 1 Samuel 16. I don't, I don't see as man sees. I look at the heart. And when God looks at what he would deem as significant, he puts the word treasure on it. It's something on the inside of us. And Paul talks about what that is leading up to verse 7. He says in, in verse 1, therefore, in light of what he'd just been talking about, and we'll get to that in chapter 6, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy. What is mercy? It's not getting what you deserve. We do not lose heart. The ministry that Paul was talking about was his personal ministry. And he called it in chapter 3 the ministry of the new covenant. We don't have time to break that all down in chapter 3, but in chapter 3, he's basically going to contrast the old covenant to the new covenant. For you people that are new to studying the word of God, the old covenant was the, the covenant that God made with Moses. It was the giving of the law. And, and in that realm, in that dispensation of God saying, here's the covenant, here's how you're going to worship me, there were limitations there were limitations to even approaching God. We talked about this in one of our previous studies that when God gave the law, he's like, don't anybody even touch the mountain. That's just the holiness of God, the justice of God. Just stand back. And Moses then was allowed to go up, but only Moses. The access to God was limited. Even as you move forward in time, only the high priest could go into the holy of holies which was a 15 by 15 by 15 room where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, where it represented the, the, the presence of God. Actually, the presence of God was there. And the, the, the high priest could only go there on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year. It was limited. When the law was given, the primary reason of the law being given was to reveal mankind's sin. Okay, great. Now I know that I'm a sinner. You've revealed my sin. What comes with that? What's the result of that guilt? And because the law was never given to forgive the sin or to wash the person clean from sin, it was just there to, to expose the sin, the law then left you condemned. And that kind of summarizes the, 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 the old covenant. Now Paul will contrast the old covenant to the, the new covenant. And as he does, he talks about it in chapter 3, verse 6, the ministry of the new covenant that it's rooted and based upon the Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, he says, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he's speaking about salvation that comes from the new covenant. True righteousness that comes from the covenant. True holiness. True liberation. The new covenant has no limitations as far you're not limited in coming to God, limited in having access to God. Anyone can now approach God. God. 
The veil has been removed from the throne. That was pictured symbolically and actually literally when Jesus died on the cross, there was a great earthquake. And it says that the temple itself shook and the veil of the temple, which limited the, the, the ark is in there, the presence of God there, and, and only the, the, the people could not go in except the priest once a year, that the veil of the temple was torn. It was just ripped from top to bottom. And it was a picture that now under this new covenant where Jesus said the night before he went on that cross, as he held the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'm establishing a new covenant. Salvation, forgiveness, eternal life. It's all based on me and what I'm providing on the cross. The access now to God is now through me. And it's available to anyone. And that pictured was pictured in the ripping of that veil. The new covenant, the veil was removed. And it also says... And when the new covenant is embraced, when someone understands who Jesus is and they embrace him personally, they put their faith in him, that the, the veil, there's another veil, not just the veil between picturing access between us and God, but the veil is taken away. And the idea behind that in chapter 3, verse 16, it says that when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What happens? It's, it's like this guy who came in early this year. He's driving by the church. Knocks on the door. I happen to be walking by the church office. I open the door and he goes, I need to talk to somebody right now. Uh, without giving you all the details. This guy, I don't believe, would have finished off his full day on earth if he hadn't found Jesus. He was that desperate. And so as he began to talk, he goes, I have to confess some things. And I said, great. This is how this is going to lay out. You're going to go over on that table, and, and, and you're going to confess them to God because I can't help you. Only Jesus can. And he goes, oh. and I go, and I'm going to stand over here, and I want to hear you. I'm going to stand over on a counter, and I want to make sure you are, you are crying out to the Lord. Because he, Jesus is the one who said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you start confessing to him and crying out to him. So I went away and I left the guy there just to see if he, was, if he meant business. And he did. He did. He walked in and there was a veil over his eyes. He didn't know Jesus. His, his mind and his heart was closed to Jesus. He had given his heart and his mind over to all kinds of other things. And he was now in bondage to, and he had no hope. He was ready to end it all. All I did was like, I told him who Jesus is, what Jesus could do, quoted a couple of scriptures about confessing, and, and just said, now get to it. And I just went over and I just started highlighting other verses that I assumed he would need if he indeed gave his life to the Lord. And he did. There was no song in the background. There was no official altar call. There was no, none of that kind of stuff. We didn't send him over to the counselors on my left. None of that kind of stuff. It was just, he walked in and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. When we, when we, when I came back to him, he began to talk about Jesus in different terms. You see, the veil was lifted. Amen. The, the, this, this ministry of the new covenant was now shared with him and it became his. Do you see that? Interesting.
And that's the ministry where the new covenant begins. You see, in chapter 3, again, verse 18, Paul would say, but we with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the same Spirit of the Lord. We sing that song about magnifying the Lord in our life. We are now face to face, personally, relationally, daily, gazing upon the Lord. John, John the Baptist is like, man, that, may, may I decrease that he might increase. May he be magnified in my life. And this ministry has a radical effect on me, Paul says. It, it transforms me more and more into the image of Christ. And that same ministry has an impact on the people around me because they begin to see reflected outside of me the work that he is doing inside of me. It's a ministry of reflecting his life. His transforming work. His righteousness. His, his holiness. And this is all what the, the, the great commission that Jesus said is now ours in Matthew chapter 28. That's what this encompasses. It's the new ministry of the new covenant that, that we who have been changed by Jesus would go out and help people understand him and walk with him. Paul calls this ministry something, he's like, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy. Paul, the apostle, was Saul, the persecutor. <laughs> he was out persecuting the church. Now he is by no stretch of the title, the leader of the then early church, advancing the kingdom of God through the, the Roman Empire. Did he deserve that role? Did he deserve that message? Did he deserve that opportunity of the Lord coming into his life and transforming his life, the light coming on, the veil being lifted, you see? Did he deserve that? No. He deserved judgment. He's a born sinner. But God in his mercy did not give him what he deserved as he was murdering Christians, incarcerating Christians. Even when, when, when Jesus met him on the you know, Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, he's like, why are you persecuting me? This is a personal thing with the head of the church, the groom. Why are you persecuting my bride? I feel that when you persecute them. Think of what Paul deserved but did not get. Therefore, since we, we, have this ministry, we have received mercy. Therefore, let me say it this way, we press on and don't give in, don't, don't cave in, don't give up. We do not lose heart. Paul says being mindful of, of the ministry of who Jesus is and what he's done in my life, being mindful of the fact that he has just showed me so much mercy. I'm not going to lose heart. For you note-takers, there's, there's three great motivating factors that should keep us going as Christians. Number one, what God has done to me, and that's the salvation that he has brought about in our life. Number two, what God is currently doing in me. 
This is something that Paul talks about in this chapter, even in verse 16. If you look down at verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart. Again, kind of a reoccurring theme with Paul. Don't be losing heart. We do not lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. That should motivate you. How many of you guys realize that it's okay to get old? Come on, man. Some of you young people are, what is that? But listen, just, just agree with us. Humor us this morning, okay? Let me tell you why it's okay to get old. You ready? Wisdom. I have a grandson now. That's a cool thing. I've got married children now. That's a cool thing. I can go on and on. But, but, but here's the thing. As this outward man is, it's, it's losing hair, and the hair that it keeps is turning colors, and, and the aches and the pains, and just, I, I, I'm not as, as ready to recover when I surf and ride my mountain bike and these things that I just love to do. I, I see the writing on the wall, and you're like, this is getting kind of morbid, Lance. Big deal. Because the outward man was never designed to live on forever and ever and ever and ever. It's perishing. It's in the process of going to its final day. But at the same time as a Christian, there's a new man. There's the inside. As Paul would say, even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. You want to know what happened with Brian right here? You, you think his guitar got all weird or anything? No, no, no. Let me tell you what happened with Brian right now. I was sitting over here and I'm all, thank you, Jesus. He had a renewed moment with Jesus. And we just got to sit down and hang out and be part of it. No, seriously. He did. It's just, it was something God just went, this is where I'm going to take you right now, my son. He wants, we're singing about it, that Christ will be magnified in me. Okay, now I'm going to just do that right now, Brian. Right, right in front of everybody. Now, you who were focused on Jesus, you went there. And something new and fresh about you and him began to kindle in your heart. That's the idea. That he might magnify, that he might become bigger and bigger in my, my, my heart and my mind and my eyes. So the, the three things, let me get back to that. What God does to me in salvation, what he's currently doing in me, renewing the inward man day by day. And then what God will do for me. Galatians 6 9 says, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Because of that, because of the new ministry, because the veil is lifting, because of who Jesus is to us and what he's doing in our life and through our life and what he's going to be doing in the future. Some things we must do. Verse 2, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. There's a lot to unpack here, but we're going to unpack it. When he says we've renounced the hidden things of shame, he's basically saying, guys, we've put away the old life. It's almost like an agreement, haven't we? We've put away the old life. 
That whole life of hypocrisy, that whole life of religiosity, that whole life of playing a game with God, the, the Jewish people might say, the religious people might say, we've put that away. Today we might even say as the church, as a ministry. And we've just put away the methods and the schemes and just the games that religious people are playing and calling it church. Just put all that away, either in my life or as the church. And then he says, there's something we're not doing. We're not handling the word of God deceitfully. That word in the Greek, deceitfully, is the Greek word adulterate. It speaks of, they used it for a merchant that would be buying and selling wine. And, and he would oftentimes buy really good quality wine, and then he would adulterate it. He would water it down. And he did it because bottom line meant everything to that guy. What's in it for me meant everything to that guy. There was even some deceptive practices that are eluded in this idea. But the idea is that he looked at what culture wanted, not what culture needed, and he listened to the cry of culture. This is what we will pay for the wine. This is what we want in our wine. This is what you will give us in wine. And he watered down what he had to give them what they want rather than what they need. And Paul says, look, we, as we're ministering, put yourself in his shoes as well as a Christian today. When it comes to the word of God, we're not doing that. Amen. Amen. We're, we're, we're not doing that. We're just, we're just not going to do that. We are living in a day, we are living in an age where the enemy would want nothing more than to water down, let's use this term, minimize, if not remove altogether, minimize what, what God desires to use in revealing who he is, in revealing the gospel, in revealing the plan of him sending his son to die on a cross in order to save mankind. The enemy wants none of that proclaimed. The enemy wants, wants no part of the inerrant, inspired, eternal word of God, which should be a lamp to our feet, a light into our path. As Timothy would say, that word that teaches us it's, it's what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. He wants none of that to be what God intended it to be. He wants it to be watered down and he wants it to be minimized. Now we could look at the church today and we could say, well, that's happening in pulpits across America or pulpits across the, the earth, the planet, in our culture, where, where preachers and teachers, pastors, and clergy are no longer preaching the word of God. They're just, they're just not talking about it anymore. They've completely minimized that. Paul says, no, 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 we're not doing that. But that can also happen in your world. 
not just on this platform, but on your platforms. It can happen in your workplace. You see, we have an enemy right now who is doing his best to, to silence the gospel. To just minimize the gospel. Laws in our country are, are being suggested, many of them even being passed, to eliminate scriptures out of the public square. Now, any legislator who would vote on that, if they were a Christian, they are completely minimizing the word of God. And that could be said of an individual who goes into the workplace and they're like, hey, don't be, don't be sharing God's word here. Don't be carrying your Bible here. It could be in a, in a school where you're, you're, you're going to school and they're like, no, 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 don't be, don't be bringing that out up here. Don't be bringing any scriptures up in this class. And those people that would cave into those pressures, they are just as guilty Paul would say, no, 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 we are, we, are, we, are, we are not handling the word of God deceitfully. We're just, we are just absolutely not going to do that. How many of you guys know that, 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 that what is true of us 2,000 year, years ago is true of us today? 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this, there were, there were sinners in need of a Savior. How many of you guys know that that was true then? It's true today, amen? The Bible says that we're all born that way. And today we are still being born that way. What is true of Jesus 2,000 years ago is true of him today. He alone is the source of salvation for sinners. Amen? Amen. That hasn't changed. Without Christ, mankind is lost. They, they have no hope. That biblical truth does not change. 2,000 years ago, you know, he was beginning to remove the veil Following the cross, the veil was beginning to be like that ministry of the veil. And people began to see him for who he is. 2,000 years later, that veil is still being removed from people's eyes today. That truth, this ministry, has not changed. 2,000 years ago, he was offering spiritual life to any who would put their faith in him. 2,000 years later, people are experiencing spiritual life, salvation, true righteousness, true holiness, true Liberation, that biblical truth does not change. And where his life manifests, biblical truth is seen. And where biblical truth is clearly seen, his life will manifest. It's true for an individual, it's true for a church. Not so with Paul. He declared the truth. As God revealed truth, he presented the truth of God's word plainly, honestly, boldly, and consistently. And just so you know, over the years we've, we've been and will continue to be a Bible teaching church. In our, we have a board meeting this week and as the board comes in we all sit down and we talk about like the vision of this church, the focus of this church. We have in our minutes, anything ever happens to me, God takes me home, I believe one day the trumpet will sound, and we'll all go together at the same time. Okay, that's what I'm hoping for. Maybe tomorrow. Well, let's finish the election. November 4th would be cool, trumpet voice. Maybe Christians will vote this election cycle. I want to see that to be true. But, 
you know, one of the things we've talked about that is I just, no, no matter what, whoever, you know, God takes me home, whoever stands in this pulpit on a regular basis or on a part-time basis, they have to teach the, the undefiled, unadulterated, uncompromised word of God. Because that's what we've done for 30 years. <laughs> we're not going to change. We're not going to deviate from that. We're not going to water it down. We're not going to dilute it. So when, as we've said for the last few years, as you vote, we think it's so essential that you, you vote your Christian values and that you're voting for people, whether it's at the local or at the federal, whatever, that Christian liberties are on the ballot. The life of the unborn is on the ballot. You know, just being able to do this in a regular basis, freely being able to preach every aspect of this without fines, without us being, you know, threatened, without us being closed down, without me finishing the sermon in La Habra or something, you know, in the prison, you know, the, the jail. All of that is, it really is on the ballot. Maybe not like right away, but it's on the ballot. And I think it's, 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 this is where we allow the word of God to be heard. And so I, I, I do pray that as we are moving forward, you understand if Christians don't rise up in America and speak their convictions as they vote, then our Christian liberties are going to be taken away from us. They are already being challenged, and some of them, I mean, look at the, look at the public forums right now. They're trying to take scriptures out of all of these public places it's prayer out of school. It's crazy that people will kneel for some sort of social issue, but you cannot kneel for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You know, these things are like just boggle our minds. But I just want you to know, no matter what the state says, no matter what the federal government says, you will always have a place here called Calvary La Habra that you can come to. And I don't care what they say we can teach or we can't teach. We are going to follow the word of God. That's just going to happen. And if for any reason some knucklehead gets into this pulpit behind me and starts to water things down, pull out this sermon and let them listen to him and then just walk him off the property. <laughs> but even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age have blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. He's like, listen. And again, we're talking about the non-believer. They're not our enemy. They're victims of the enemy. And the truth that we hold to be so dear to us about who Jesus is, a truth that changed our lives, transformed our lives, it's hidden from those who are in the process of perishing, he says. He's the God of this age. Satan has blinded. And when Paul talks about Satan blinding people's minds, he is talking about spiritual deception. He is talking about deception that keeps people from seeing the truth and the benefits of the gospel. It's interesting, you know, you know there's smart people around here, you know, that are not saved. They're intelligent people. You can go up to them and say, hey, I got an exchange I'd like to, to, to offer you. Okay, what's the exchange? I'm going to give you the snap, snap, this $20 bill for, you know, a quarter in your pocket. They would say, that's a good deal. Give me your $20 bill. If I could go up to someone who had bad health and I had good health and say, hey, would you like to exchange health? And I really could do that. 
I think these people would be logically sound enough to go, that's a great deal, I'll take that any day. But you go to those same people who are that logical and that smart and say, look, the Bible says, like, you're a sinner. And the Bible says that because of that, you have no peace with God. Because you have no peace with God, you have no peace. The Bible says that because of that, you are, you are under the, the judgment of God. You're going to face the wrath of God. The Bible says there is eternity to face for all of us. There's a heaven, there's a hell. And until you receive Jesus Christ into your life, you are going to spend eternity in hell. Now, I have an exchange that I'd like to offer you. The exchange would be this. It's not from me, it's from your creator. He would like to take your sin. He's already placed it upon himself. He's already paid your debt. He would like to take that upon himself. If you'll simply put your faith in him, he would like to forgive you of your sin. He'd like to remove that sin. And he'd like to remove that guilt. And he'd like to take that void that you have where there is no peace, he'd like to fill it with peace. And on top of that, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the, the goodness, the, the gentleness, the meekness, the, the self-control, all of this. And then he's going to alter your eternal destination. The great exchange you no longer go to hell, you go to heaven. It's amazing because those people that would exchange good health for bad health, exchange $20 for a penny, will look at you and go, you really believe that stuff? They just don't see it as a good deal. What's going on? It's spiritual deception. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He would say in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, nor can he even know them because they're spiritually discerned. The natural man has no conviction in their hearts, sees no conviction or no need for forgiveness, no concern for future judgment. They don't get it. They don't see that any more than a blind man would see a sunset. A spiritually dead person will not get it until the Spirit of God awakens their heart like he has with those that are born again. And Satan's work is to keep the lost people in the dark to the truths about Jesus. He does not want the light of salvation to shine in their hearts. And so Satan sows his seeds of deception through many, many parts of our culture in an attempt to keep people lost to keep them in the darkness as to who Jesus is, to keep them convinced that they have made the right choice in rejecting him and minimizing him and writing him off. I find it kind of funny that we could talk about a lot of things with people, but you bring up Jesus and it just gets, it gets awkward. That's a good word. You know, years ago, I remember we went, I've used this illustration a few times, so bear with me if it's a repeat. And I'm getting older now, so I can repeat these things. It's great. <laughs> Just go along. That's the first time I ever heard that. Anyway, a bunch of us went to Disneyland. And um, packed, packed Disneyland. And the kids were younger, and there were a bunch of other families. And the, there's a, we, were, we were walking by this one bathroom. There's lines out the door. And some of the little guys like, we got to go to the bathroom. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll take the little guys into the bathroom here. So we get in line. And and these guys are like five or six. I remember just, so I'm like trying to you know, herd them in, but it's just packed. And as we get in, the, you know, everyone's moving around. We kind of get spread out a little bit, and we're standing there waiting to get our, our turn. And, 
And, and I don't know, there's probably 60 people in this bathroom. There was no social distancing at that day. But the, the whole idea was that we were separated. And all of a sudden, I hear this little voice go, hey, Pastor Lance. I'm like, yes. You okay, buddy? Yeah, 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 I'm over here. Hey, Pastor Lance, while we're waiting in line, what's your favorite Bible verse? I've never heard a men's bathroom just go silent. It was it, you know, John 3.16. That's where we're going right now. Okay, yeah, John 3.16. Can you say it? Yes. You want to clear out a bathroom at Disneyland? Just start going there and quoting John 3.16. Where'd everybody go, Uncle Lance? (laughs) Jesus said to Nicodemus, that God just so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He, he went on, and he's like, Nicodemus, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only begotten son of God. And he says, now this is condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen. They have been done in God. Jesus says, listen, Nicodemus, understand. There's there's people out there and they they love their life. But there's a kingdom of darkness and the life of that kingdom that is produced by the prince of the power of the air who Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 works in the sons of disobedience is a life that is dark, it's immoral. It's, it's, it's a difficult life. It's an empty life. It's a life filled with shackles and bondage. But they, they love that. They've given their heart over to that. And so when the, the light, which speaks of, of God, the person of Christ, the mission of Christ, the deliverance of Christ, and the benefits of Christ... When, it, when that comes into the world, these guys are so like, ah, I so love what I do. And then light does what light does. It, it shines on darkness and, then, and it exposes what's, what's wrong with the darkness. They don't like that either. Paul says here, their minds have been blinded by the God of this age. The mind of those who do not believe. Again, the issue is not with the message. It's, it's not even as I'm delivering the gospel right now. The issue is not with the messenger. The issue is with the heart who chooses not to believe the message as the message is given from the messenger. Satan is at work. Deception is real. First John chapter 5, he says, the whole world lies under the sway of 
the, the wicked one. The primary thing that Satan blinds people to is in verse 4, the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. The character of Jesus. The uniqueness of God the Son. Satan blinds them from the light of the gospel seen and revealed in Christ. John, John 8, 24, Jesus said to the religious leaders, Therefore I say to you that you're going to die in your sins, guys. For unless you believe that I am he, that I am God, that I am the Messiah, the Savior of the world, you're going to die in your sins. Paul says, 2 Timothy 2.26, that some fall into the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him, even to do his will. Can they be set free? Absolutely. Is the responsibility and the power and the ability placed on us? No. It's placed on Christ. And the message of Christ has been entrusted to us. It's Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 12, in a statement after healing one who was physically blind, he says, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house? And he pictures Satan there as the strong man. He's guarding a house. Picture him in his armor and whatnot. He's like a guard. And he's guarding the, the, the house and, and all of the goods. The house is the kingdom in which he dominates. The possessions fall on humanity. The victims in which he holds bondage. But as Satan is standing on guard, Jesus says, a stronger than he comes, speaking of himself and overcomes him and claims his spoils. John 12, 31, 32. Now is judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. How many of you have a friend or a loved one that you need to introduce to Jesus? It got quiet. Raise your hand if you have a friend or loved one that you just need to introduce to Jesus. Some of you have only converted people around your lives. That's amazing. What a blessing it is when the glorious light of Jesus shines on a person's heart. And they're set free from the power of darkness, from the God, from Satan, the God of this world, redeemed and living in truth, living in Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ day by day. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. Paul's like, look it, we don't elevate ourselves, <laughs> we don't promote ourselves, and you need to be careful about following anybody who does that. So what do we preach then? We preach Christ Jesus the Lord. In chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 9, Paul talked about, I don't even really trust myself. He's like, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, he talked about, look at what I do, I don't enable myself. He's like, 
Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers. So Paul's like, I really don't trust myself. (laughs) I I, I know when it comes to ministry, I don't enable myself. And he says, and when it comes to preaching, I do not preach myself. I preach Jesus. Why? Because he's the one that changes lives. If you're a counselor here, hear this. If you're a parent, a teacher, if you have any influence over anybody, hear this. The greatest service we can provide is the service that teaches people about Jesus, how to give their life to him, and how to depend on him as the Lord of their life. We preach him as a doulos, as a slave for Christ. And then he says, kind of to drive this point home in verse 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Paul seems to be reaching back to creation to use as an example to prove or drive his point home. Back there in creation, just as God moved over the waters, so the Spirit of God moves over an individual at salvation, convicting that person of sin, as Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do in John chapter 15. And then drawing that person to that place of saying, I need help. I'm wrong. I need a Savior. Like the earth, the lost sinner is formless. And empty. The sinners exposed to the truth. <laughs> Let there be light. God begins to form and fill that life. They're no longer in darkness. Paul himself experienced this. On the Damascus Road, when, 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 when he was on a horse heading to a city to incarcerate or murder more Christians, the Lord appeared to him in this bright light and spoke to him as such. It was like, Saul, why why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you, Lord? Jesus was not someone that was familiar in in Paul's theology and all of his religiosity. He hadn't connected the dots to who Jesus really was. Had to ask that question when Jesus was revealing himself to him right there on that, that road. Who are you? And he took it back to incarnation. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I am the one that all of your buddies put on a cross. The guy from Nazareth, remember him? But you are currently still persecuting me. The groom speaking about what Jesus, or what Paul, Saul, excuse me, was doing to his bride. And at that point the light began to come in. He began to open up his heart. It it takes both the sovereignty of God, the mercy and the grace of God, and then free will, the the capacity to think and to reason and to, to rationalize who this is and what he wants from me and what he wants to do in my life. And that's what was going on. And then he comes to that point saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? In that very moment that Saul humbled himself and accepted Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ shined on him. The knowledge and the understanding of Jesus Christ had been embraced and received within him. And look at what God did with this guy. It's, just, it's, it's mind-boggling what happens 
when the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is, 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 is now a reality in someone's life. And the knowledge and the understanding of Christ is now a reality in someone's life. You know, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter said that God has called all believers out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, now we read this verse 7. We, if you're here as a Christian, Christians plural, in a church, it is a Bible teaching, Bible believing, Bible live out church. We who have not a lot of significance in the eyes of our culture. Not a lot of value in the eyes of our culture. We who have been deemed by our culture as non-essential. We who have been given this ministry and all that that is in our life, who Jesus is, what he has done, the work that he desires to work through us. We now, in verse 7, have this Treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God looks at the investment that he has made in your life, which is his son, and he says, you're essential because of that. <laughs> It doesn't matter what the world says. Your identity should not be formed by the world. The policies of the world, the positions of the world, the statements of the world. Your identity as a Christian should be formed by the one who saved you. And he's like, there's something really valuable in you. And it's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The knowledge and the understanding of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. What's the treasure? The treasure is Jesus himself. When they're saying you're not essential, they're saying Jesus is not essential. And he is. He is. The treasure is Jesus himself. Not just the awareness of him, but the existence of him. His message. And God places this treasure in earthen vessels. This transforming gospel power has been committed to fragile followers of Christ that you might even say are clay pots or crack pots. And the reason for this is so that the world would have no mistake about where the power comes from to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You know, growing up in the church, there are many great leaders I revered, respected. As I came in, into my early 20s and got more involved with the Calvary Chapels, Pastor Chuck Smith, I just loved the, the ministry of the word. Billy Graham in the 80s came through here. I was just a big Billy Graham fan. Brought all these young kids from our surf shop to this crusade out there in Anaheim State. A bunch of kids got saved. I looked at these two men, revered these two men. And oftentimes I would hear this, this statement about these two men. 
what is going to happen to their ministry when they die? There's all, there's volumes written about this kind of stuff. Well, if you're watching TV at all or watching any kind of, you know, uh, cable news on your computer, you're going to websites or whatnot, you know that Billy Graham had a son, his name's Franklin. And Franklin was a rebel most of his life, but the, the light of the gospel shined on this guy, okay? And his, 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 his dad was very proud of him and whatnot, but Franklin, like, okay, he woke up to who Jesus was, began to, to, to serve him with significance and with passion. And so Billy, a few years ago, the Lord took him home and his son, God, was done with one clay pot and the work of God continues in another clay pot. Some people are going to reveal the pot, revere the pot. Others are going to revere the God that worked in the pot. Chuck Smith was taken home a few years ago. We are sitting in a Calvary chapel. You are listening to a Bible study through another clay pot that that man inspired. You're a clay pot. Only so many days this treasure will be entrusted to you and will work in and through you. And I pray that you're a good steward of that clay pot. I pray that you are a good steward of the message that's been entrusted to you as a clay pot. And then we close with these words. Because of this, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're, we're perplexed. Anybody perplexed today? <laughs> I am. But not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. I was thinking about, and I have a list of things that have happened in our state that should not have been allowed to happen in our state, laws that have passed, even in our country. Things that grieve the heart of God, break the heart of God. Laws that are contrary to the word of God. And oftentimes people will say, you know, that is the result of people not voting and Christians not voting. And I believe that there's merit to those statements as far as righteous people standing for the unborn. Righteous people standing for those that are born and are elementary age and going to public schools and are now being forced to, to, to be taught things that are not true historically and that are radically immoral. And I can go down the list. But it's not just about our vote. It's not just about 
an election. That's part of it. Where other lines are formed in fighting this battle are outside the church, are outside election centers. They're battle lines that have been formed in your workplace. They're battle lines that have been formed maybe in your home. They're battle lines that have been formed in, in, in the relationships that God has entrusted you with. And it's our privilege to be not ignorant, but to be informed, to, to just walk through the scriptures and understand the scriptures and be able to give an answer for the faith that lies within us. This is where the kingdom advances. The kingdom of God will advance. There's many different governments in this world. But there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, ultimately. And there is the ruler of one, the kingdom of darkness, which is the prince of the power of the air, who is very busy working in the sons of disobedience. He's real, and he's powerful, and he is at work. But there is one that is more powerful. And he's also at work. And may we show up and do his bidding while we still have our clay pots. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this treasure that you've invested in us. May we be faithful with it. We do pray for our nation. Pray for healing of our land. We pray for righteous men and righteous women to be exalted. We pray that the agenda of Satan for America would be thwarted. We pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of your blood, against the plan that Satan has for America. We pray against that. We pray for your church. Wake us up, Lord. Revive us. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. May we stand boldly and defend the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And may churches throughout America get back to teaching Jesus. Get back to teaching the word of God. Get back to the main thing, which is you. And those churches, those leaders who have deviated from you and deviated from teaching your word, Lord, convict them, bring them back. That's the hope of America. It's you and Americans finding you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, we love you guys. A couple things before you go. Um, they're going to show a couple videos. You can stay or you can go. But uh, one thing you don't want to miss out on is next week is a time change. I know most of you wake up to your alarm on your phone. It'll automatically do that. So we fall back an hour, okay? For you that still use a wind-up alarm clock, okay? We fall back an hour. But we're also going to bring another change into the mix. We're going to change our service times. Our first service is currently at 8. Our second service is at 10. Starting next week, our first service will be at 8.30. Can you say that? 8.30. And our second service will be at... 10.30, okay? So if you show up here at 10, we'll be here, but we're going to start at 10.30. So all of, we're on the half hour thing. S uh, Wednesday night, we're at 6.30. Sunday morning, we're going to be at 8.30 and 10.30. So 
Unless the Lord raptures us out of here, I will see you next week here, there, or in the air. God bless you guys. <laughs>